James chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 20. We're finishing the book tonight. So that's pretty cool. We're in the final message of our study through the book of James. And throughout this study, we've had really weekly opportunities for the Word of God to be able to examine us because this book is pretty, uh, I mean, it prompts a lot of self-examination, whether you ask for it or not. That's what you get when you read this book. Uh, So James has brought our attention to um, many things throughout this book just that come about in the Christian life, namely suffering, temptation, uh, prayer, patience, relationships in the church, even uh, relationships outside of the church as well. But I want to highlight, I want to highlight four specific things that have been mentioned throughout the book. Um, maybe not necessarily the main things of the book, but four things that I've seen throughout the book and then occur again in the verses that we're studying tonight. So um, for this final message, I considered reading the whole book again, like we did the first time. We're not going to do that this time. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, but what I, what I do want to do, what I do want to do is go through a survey a little bit. Um, some, of, some points that I want to highlight, not so we can read the whole book again, but so that I can, I can point your eyes to um, other areas of this book where James is talking about the same things that we're, we're looking at in the text tonight. So remember what I've said in previous messages, um, and I think you can kind of tell this just by reading the book of James. There doesn't seem to be a strict structure of, okay, this is point number one. Now I'm moving to point number two. Now I'm moving to point number three, and we're done. He's not going in like a strict order. He's kind of bringing up multiple topics um, as he pleases. And uh, that's not to say that it's messy or, or totally unorganized or totally impossible to follow. But it is, it is a, James is not Paul, James is not John, James is not um, Matthew. James has his own style. So before we read tonight's text, what I want to do to help us uh, recognize um, what we're reading tonight, I want to go through a little bit of the book of James, highlighting those four things that I said. Suffering, um, temptation, prayer, and relationships. So to be clear, I'm not saying these are the four main things that the book is talking about. I'm just saying these are four of some of the main things that James talked about. So first one, uh, suffering. So where, where can we see this topic addressed in the book of James? If you go to James 1, verse 2, it starts right away. This is really the first thing that he brings up. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In James 1.12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Trial is another way of talking about a kind of suffering, a kind of test of faith. Uh, And then in James 5.7, which is the text that Matt preached last week, He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Why does he have to tell us to be patient? Because sometimes we want to be impatient because of what we're going through. So he wouldn't say be patient if it was so easy to already be patient. He would say be patient because he knows it's hard. 
Um, okay, next, next topic that I see in the book of James, temptation. And uh, just dealing with, with our sin. So look at James 1, verse 13. Um, look at this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And his desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Oh, I'm going to verse 21. Sorry, I skipped it. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Well, why does he have to say put it away? Uh, notice there he says rampant wickedness. Where? Like outside of us? He's saying that that's, in, that's inside of us. That we have to be proactive about that. So, um, there are other places where he says that. But I think the best way of summarizing how James talks about temptation in this book is James 4, 7. Check out this verse. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Man, I need to remind myself of that one. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Alright. Next. So we have suffering, temptation. Now the next topic that I want to highlight is prayer in the book of James. So if you go to James 1 verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask or pray in faith with no doubting. The one who doubts is like a way of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Look at James 4, verse 3. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's saying the issue isn't whether you pray or you don't pray. He's saying the way that we pray already naturally is problematic. And then look at James 4, verses 8 through 10. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's that word again. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Alright, so there we have some topical verses on prayer. Now the last category that I want to talk about is relationships. This really binds it all together. Because you have, you have no book of James without the, the plural group of Christians that he's talking to. He's not talking to one individual person. He's addressing us. Note the amount of times he says, brothers, brothers, my brothers, my brothers. He says it because he, he intends for this book to be read as a, as a, communal, as a communal exhortation. Of course, we consider the individual implications, but it's a communal exhortation. Something that's addressed to us as a community is what that means. Okay, so look at James 2, verse 1. Um, this one is super memorable to me because it comes with that little story. James 2, verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? All right. So there he's talking about the way that we relate to other people uh, and even the way that we do it as Christians, like on behalf of the church, the way that we relate to other people um, can be pretty messed up sometimes. 
In James 3.10, he says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Um, and then in James 4.11, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges, or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge? Your neighbor. Okay, so as you can see, James has discussed each of these topics earlier in the book. Suffering, temptation, prayer, relationships. So on suffering, the way that I would summarize his teaching is suffering, remain steadfast. That's basically James' teaching. Temptation, resist the devil. On prayer, he says, ask in faith, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And on relationships... He says, speak and act as those who are under the law of liberty. So there we have a summary on those specific topics. And, the, and so James is saying, this is a problem. And then he's saying, this is what you should do in response to that. Now, let's read the conclusion of this book. James 5, starting in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, <coughs> excuse me, therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great powers it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Okay. Now, I want to give the disclaimer that I'm using these four categories, suffering, temptation, prayer, relationships. I'm, I'm identifying those categories like me. They're helping me, Jeffrey, think about this text. So I'm not, you know, don't... Don't assume that James intended for that to be the outline when he wrote in the first century. That's just the way that I'm trying to process this thing. So if that helps, I, I hope it helps you that I give those four categories. But if you don't see the connection, you know, well, that's on me. I'm sorry. So I want to ask you guys, where, where do you think we can find those four themes that I was talking about? Does anyone remember the list that I gave? Suffering. Temptation. Okay, suffering, temptation, prayer, and relationships. Okay, it says it right here. Why don't you? <laughs> uh, so, where do you think? Where do you think I am finding suffering in the text? Or am I just completely making this up? Where is that addressed in in these verses, thirteen through twenty of chapter five? What do you think? Yeah, thirteen. Verse thirteen. I mean, it says, "Is anyone among you suffering?" Okay. Yeah. Is anyone among you sick? That's another kind of affliction. Um, I, I don't think he means a headache. Um, 
I'm, I'm kind of annoyed when people say that that's them being sick, that they have a headache. It's like, that's not, that's not, that's not. You agree with me, Woody? Well, of course you do. Um, <laughs> so yeah, when he's talking about sickness here, he means sick, sickness like it's, it's an affliction. It's a serious trial. It's a suffering. Um, okay. Now, where do you think I'm getting temptation? Or, or I guess to generalize it, like struggling with sin. This is more of like, this is more like that the concept is in the text. Maybe not the word. Like suffering was easy. It was like in the, it was like the third word. It was like, oh, one, two, three, four, five. It was the fifth word. So where do we see temptation conceptually as a concept in these, in these verses? Where do you think I'm seeing that? Is it there? Oh no. Is temptation in this in this text? <laughs> Where do you think I'm seeing the the issue of sin? Like struggling with sin, people wanting to. 16 Okay, sixteen. Um, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He's not saying if you have sin, confess he's saying just like you have it. You're a sinner. So <laughs> he's assuming that you struggle with sin. Um, and then verse 19, he says, if, any, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Well, why, why the wandering? Where does that come from? It, like it says in James 1, it says we're tempted by our own desire. Something that's actually quite natural to us as sinners. Outside of Christ, that, is, that, that would be natural to us. But we operate according to a new nature. Yeah, so um, James is talking about dealing with the wanderings of your soul, the wanderings of your, of your spiritual life. Okay, so that's there. Now, where do we see prayer in this text? Where do you think I'm seeing that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like actually most of the text is dedicated to the the power of prayer. Um, and he gives the example of Elijah, which is just an example of someone who prayed. Um, so he's not just going on a tangent like, oh, I really like this Bible story, by the way. But he's giving it as an example to the prayer thing that he's talking So that's actually probably the the most mentioned thing in the text. It seems that most of what we have tonight is about prayer. Okay. And what do you think I'm getting? Relationships. That's the fourth category that I had. Where is that in the text? Yeah, William. It says my brothers. My brothers, right. So, so even the way that he's Addressing whoever is reading this letter is is a we're in we're in a, a family relationship. Yeah. Fourteen says, mm-hmm. "When sick, let him call the elders of the church." Yeah. Uh, with the prayer over like a back and forth. Right. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned the let him call for the elders as a relationships thing, because for some people it sounds like you know put on a suit and tie and it's so official, but he says that anyone among you. Among you, so given the context, 
pretty sure he's talking about the church. Anyone, because then he talks about, let him call for the elders of the church. So we're not just talking about any kinds of relationships, but I'm, I'm glad that you highlighted that. I think James is talking about, is talking to, primarily in this paragraph, um, the church in, in themselves. There are other parts, like when he's talking about rich, greedy people, I was like, your day of slaughter is coming. It's like, okay, I don't think he's talking to Christians when he's saying that. Whereas this is like, he's talking to Christians here. My brothers, among you, the elders of the church. So, okay. So that we can identify like the, the sub-audience of this paragraph. Okay. Um, there's also uh, this, this one. Oh, sorry. Somebody over here? Yes. Verse 16. Yeah. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Yeah. Verse 19 through 20. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, that's a really good friend. Yeah. Um, okay, so the reason I wanted to highlight these four things is to show you that there is, I think there is a, a, a building point. Like James is building up to something. So far in this book, it's felt like, okay, he's like throwing that out. Okay, that was a cool thing to talk about. Okay, let's talk about this next thing. Um, but here, I do think that there is kind of a wrapping up where he's like tying off some of the loose ends. Not all of them, but he's tying off some of the loose ends. So um, kind of like what Ethan in his response noted, these verses make less immediate sense if you don't have a local church with which you are connected. In other words, um, you know, if, if, you're just, if you're just reading this by yourself and you have no concern for other Christians, no, no, no concept of other Christians in your life, these verses are going to sound weird. Call for the elders of the church. What does that mean? Like call like just someone on the phone that I Google search? No, it's assuming that you already have a standing relationship with these people, that you have access to these people. Um, so... Um, to, whom, to whom is this specific part of the text addressed? I think we already said that. I think this paragraph of the book of James is for the church in themselves. This is an inner circle. This is a, a family conversation. Okay. Now, another thing that I want you guys to notice in the text. Are there any commands in the text? The book of James has a lot of commands. Or saying, hey, this is how it ought to be. Like, um, identifying an ideal. You should strive for this. So, are there any commands or ideals in this text? Yeah. Um, verse 13 has, let, if anyone is going to suffering, let him pray. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the let him. So some people be like, ah, that's not a command. That means just like, oh, if someone's over there like being cheerful, yeah, just let him, just let him be cheerful. I don't think. I think it is a command. I think I agree with you. I think that is. You ought to be. You ought to be praying. You ought to be cheerful. You ought to be. So um. So yeah. Some people read the let him as like a like a passive, just like okay, just don't like just don't interrupt. <laughs> But I think it is a command. Now, where there's an explicit command, where are you going to do another one? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, verse 16 of 12. Yeah. It says, confess your sins to one another for transgressions. 
trespassing. Yeah. Um, and pray for one another. Yeah. Okay, so you make you can make the argument that the only explicit command is in verse 16. Now, who, it doesn't really matter whether it's explicit or not because I think verse 16 really summarizes what the other what the first part of the text verses 13 through 14 are already saying. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That's basically what verses 13 through 15 are already saying anyway. Um, so I want us I want us to make sure we really really remember this verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So make sure I don't know you underline or highlight or make a note of, of that verse 16. Cuz that's that's really the only explicit you should do this. This summarizes why I'm explaining this stuff to you so that you do this. Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. Is that the kind of church we are? Yeah. Even if we even if we limit it to just this youth group, are we the kind of youth group? Are you the kind of youth group person that that in, intends for this to be a, a very re, like a repeating thing about our gathering? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It doesn't have to be the only reason we gather. What is that? Is that your, a view of yourself? Do you have a view of yourself that says, I want to come to youth group and this is one of the things that I want to do tonight? Are we the kind of people that pray for each other? Do we desire for others to be healed in our midst? This is the kind of thing we should care about when we're together. Um, sometimes when we miss breakout groups, I'll be honest, uh, I get a little, I get a little disappointed. To be honest with you, um, of course there are legitimate reasons why we have to miss breakout group. Okay, so that's not the point. Don't don't worry about. I don't have like a grudge or anything. I'm just saying, when we miss out on those things, I feel like when I come to youth group, I, we miss out on something when we don't do breakout group. Um, it's kind of like if I'm out of town and I miss church, it's like oh I missed out. You know, it, it's not like you know. Don't think too much about oh when we miss breakout group. Don't think too much about that. I'm just saying that when we don't do breakout group, we do miss something pretty meaningful. Just like if we miss church, we miss something meaningful in our spiritual lives. So, and I know other guys have told me that thing too. They, they basically share the same sentiment. Man, I wish we could have done breakout group tonight because there's some stuff that we talk about tonight that we need to talk about as a youth group uh, in, a more, in a more intimate, confessional way. Now notice here, we should come to church gatherings seeking to edify other people and as well also be, be our, ourselves be edified. And I just want you to know that this text is saying it's okay to tell your pastors. It's okay, it is okay to tell your leaders. In fact, it's, it's encouraging you to do so. Don't feel like, well, they're, you know, they're high. I'm, now, we have a bunch of pastor's kids here, so probably nobody... Most of you don't think this way. But don't look at your pastors thinking they're off limits. Or don't look, don't look at your parents thinking they're off limits to talk about my, my problems and my struggles with. Um, this text is encouraging us within the church. You ought to go to people that are in authority. Um, because if, if, if those people are qualified for the positions that they're in, that should be something that, that excites them. 
to be not that you're going through bad stuff. It should excite them that they have an opportunity to minister to you. So uh, look to your look to your leaders as uh, people that can edify you, because James is saying um, that that's something that you can bring to the attention of the authority of the church, and and there's there's great comfort and uh, sanctification and healing in doing that. Okay. So the two problems that James is talking about in this, in this part of the book, suffering and temptation. So I'm going to call that category the problems. And then the second category that I would have is prayer and relationship. Those are kind of together. And I would call this James's solution, his prescribed solution. Does God care about our individual problems? Allow me to answer this with a few more questions. Does God care about our individual problems? Well, did Jesus become a human in our world that abounds with suffering? Yes. Did Jesus die for a church of people that were already sinners? Why were we, why, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Did Jesus die for a people that are sufferers, that are sinners? I think the answer is an obvious yes. And in fact, he dealt with more suffering and testing of his faith than anyone that has ever lived, I would say. And these two things are are a reality in any church at any time. It doesn't matter how good of a church you are. You're going to have people suffering and struggling with sin. So look at Hebrews 2 verses 8 through 11. It says... Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, Jesus left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So that right there, Hebrews is saying, you know, I know that it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge of the world all the time. I know that right now it doesn't look that way. But in reality, it is that way. I know it doesn't look that way. Well, why doesn't it look that way? Because we're going through suffering. And it doesn't always feel like Jesus is in charge when we're suffering. That doesn't mean, that doesn't change that he is. But the author of Hebrews is saying, I know that at present it doesn't look that way. We see him for a little while. He was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Hebrews 2.18 says, Because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's us. So these words... These words suffering and temptation have some crossover. Um, suffering has more, of a, has more of an element of like, it's not my fault, it's just happening to me. Whereas temptation, you would probably think, oh, it's like, that's like your fault. That's your own sinful desire. But I do want to bring your attention that there is some crossover here. And let me explain myself here. When it says Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it was not as though Jesus was saying to himself, man... I would really love to sin right now, but I just have to say no like a million times until I die on the cross. 
Uh, now, while I'm not dismissing uh, the great accomplishment of Jesus' perfection, his impeccability, that he didn't sin. I also want to say that when the Bible says Jesus was tempted, it is not saying that he has, he has some kind of deep inclination in himself that he has to like, suppress to sin. He has no desire in himself to sin. So when it says Jesus is tempted, it's not exactly, it's not exactly the same kind of thing when sometimes it says that we are tempted. Just like how James says, he says, God can be tempted by nothing. And then he says later, when we are tempted, we're tempted by our own desire, whereas God has no desire to sin. So when it says Jesus is tempted, uh, it's, it's not quite saying that he has a sinful desire in himself, because he, he doesn't. He doesn't have a sinful nature. Here's what, here's what I'm going to say this word temptations and suffering can mean, where the crossover is. Temptations reveal who a person is. Outside of Christ. So when you take a test, like an academic test, um, and you fail the test, it doesn't matter how badly you wanted to pass the test. The test result reveals the fact of who you are in relation to the test content, the test material, right? It doesn't matter how badly you didn't want to fail. You will fail because you don't have it in you. You are not the person who passed the test. It reveals, the test reveals who you actually are in relation to that thing. So similarly, moments of temptation reveal who we are outside of Christ in relation to that sin. That's why in James 1.14, I'll say it again. Uh, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. When we are tempted or tested... We are tempted by our own desire according to our own sinful nature, our total depravity. We give in to sin and in the process reveal who we are if, if we were still outside of Christ. We reveal the, the mortal flesh, the corruption that remains in us. So Matthew, Luke, and Mark each record Jesus being tested in the wilderness where the devil comes and he says, no, it is written. So similarly, when we are suffering in affliction of sin or sickness, one of the things we have to remind ourselves of that moment of suffering, or you could even say a test, is what is God trying to reveal about me and the people around me right now through this suffering, through this test, through this trial. Remember, in the book of Judges, how does the book start? It starts by God saying, these Israelites betrayed me, and I'm not going to abandon them, but I'm going to let them go through a little bit of hell on earth to discipline them. I'm going to test them. That's what God says in Judges 2. Look, he says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. Whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So, the Lord left those nations, not driving them, them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to Israel to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war and teach war to those who had not known it before. 
So when God is when God is testing us, when we are going through suffering, um, He's not trolling us, uh, and, and He's also not sitting up there wondering like, "Hmm, I wonder what's going to happen down there. Let's see how they handle this one." Um, no, God doesn't need to find out anything. So when God gives the test results to us. It's for our benefit. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't need to find out anything. Like I said, he already knows everything. So when we go through a test, when we go through a trial, when we pass through those fires and we see, man, what, what, what's left after that thing? Then we see what's truly valuable and we see what we've been wasting our time with or things that are vanity. Remember in Philippians when Paul says this about suffering and believing in Jesus. Philippians 1.27. He says... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frighten anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, what is he saying is a sign of your salvation? He's saying... The sign of your salvation is that you're standing together in the midst of this trial where you're being opposed, where people are working against you. He is saying um, that is actually a sign of their destruction, but for you it's a sign of your salvation. And that from God. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What did Paul just say? He said, it's not only been granted to us that we believe in God, it's also been granted to us that we suffer for his sake. So that's why James at the beginning of the book, he says things count, like count it all joy, brothers. Well, why should it be a joyous thing? Paul says that should be a joyous thing because it's revealing to you that it, God is revealing something to you. Namely, it's a sign of your salvation that you are in Him. When Jesus Christ was suffering for the sake of the gospel, this wasn't because He was so far outside of God's will, but He was doing exactly what God's will was, which involved suffering. And in James 1, verse 3, He says, The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So why suffering? James answers it right there. The testing of your faith produces, produces excuse me, steadfastness. And steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when James says, is anyone among you suffering? He's not saying, and he says, let him pray. He's not saying, is anyone among you suffering? I just pray. You know, you'll get over it eventually. That's not, that's not what he's saying. Here's what I think he's saying. I think that he's saying suffering and sin, which are not necessarily the same thing, by the way. I just want to make that distinction clear. Not necessarily the same thing. Suffering and sin reveal our need for God in more ways than one. Remember Samson on Sunday, where Pastor Jose preached. After Samson slays a thousand men, uh, what happens at the end of that account? Samson says, please don't abandon me. Give me some water or I'll die of thirst. Don't abandon me. Judges 15, 18 says, Samson was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, 
You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. So Samson's thirst, his suffering, brings him to the point of saying, You are my strength in this victory, and you are my strength in my weakness, or else I die. So regardless of the outcome, the suffering and the struggle with sin has a purpose from God to remind us of our need for him and that he is sufficient. Look at the example James gives us. He gives, up, he gives us Elijah. So look, look at what he says about Elijah. <clears throat> Excuse me, in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the story of Elijah, but he really is, for a lot of his life, a, a lone ranger. He really is just doing his thing, and, and Jezebel and Ahab view him as like this rogue prophet that they need to, they put a bounty on him. So he, he's on the run, he's hiding in caves and stuff, and he's like, why? I'm like the only one doing the right thing. Why am I going through this stuff? So in 1 Kings 18, and we're going to read a little bit of the story of Elijah. Because James assumes, definitely when he's writing this, he assumes that his readers know the story of Elijah. So let's read a little bit of it. 1 Kings 18 says, 1 Kings 18 verse 1. 1 Kings 18 verse 1. I'm going to really give as best of an expedited version of this thing as I can. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the, in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, that's the king, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them, by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. That's some suffering. I mean, wow. Okay, look at verse eight. Look at verse seventeen of First Kings eighteen. When Ahab, so eventually Elijah shows up, and then when Ahab sees Elijah, Ahab says to him, "Is it you, trouble of Israel?" And Elijah answers, "I have not troubled Israel, but you have, in your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore." Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. All right, verse 22. Then Elijah says to the people, I, even I, only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull. Okay, so basically what Elijah's going to say is, we're going to have a showdown. Two bulls. You guys get to pray to your whatever God up there and ask if he can set this thing to fire. And then I'm going to do the same by myself. And we'll see who wins. So Elijah, that's the challenge. And then look at verse 36 of chapter 18. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel... Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. 
that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And then chapter 19, Ahab and Jezebel just got shown up. So look at their response. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. That's a bounty. You're dead by tomorrow. And then Elijah was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And look at this. He asked that he might die. I don't want to live anymore. It's enough now, O oh Lord. Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shap, Shaphat, of abel Methodah. You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Azael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So perhaps there are people with us tonight, among us, that are hiding in their spiritual caves, as it were. Maybe they're, asked, they're, they're saying to themselves, I alone am left. Is anyone going to help me? I'd rather just be done with the agony of this. Or perhaps there are people with us tonight that are wandering and wandering, and they're wandering into sin. And maybe they're asking the question, will anyone even care if I abandon this faith? Does anyone even care enough to hold me accountable right now? Does anyone even want to help me overcome this sin? Or will they just say, stay away from me instead of helping me overcome my sin? Imagine if Jesus came to this earth and said, wow, this earth has a lot of potential, except these disgusting people are in the way. They're kind of ruining the party. 
Let me just not get too involved with these human race people. I can't deal with their suffering and their sin. The suffering is too emotionally and even physically painful. And the sin is too treacherous, too demoralizing, too disappointing. Now, if Jesus talked to himself that way, none of us would have any relationship to him at all. No, Jesus comes to earth dealing with suffering and sin beyond the surface level. Jesus comes to earth knowing that there is a purpose for his interaction with sin and death. In John 11, this is where Jesus' friend Lazarus is dead. And it says in John 11, verse 32, When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, and had seen what he had did, believed in him. So suffering and struggles are not what they seem on the surface level. There is a God at work in you, through you, plural you, us. So pray, let's pray in our pain and our struggle with sin so that we might know that God is sovereign and that God is faithful and just to forgive you all of your sins. Look at what James says. He makes so many guarantees. The prayer of faith will save. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Our prayers and our relationships with each other have a redeeming quality. And by that, I mean that God intends for our lives to be instruments of redemption in the lives of those around us. In Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, like Elijah, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In verse 11 it says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be put out of joint, may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Jesus suffered and died once for all, not so that he could stay on the cross and be miserable for the rest of his life and for you to feel bad for him. Jesus Jesus suffered and died once so that you would not grow weary or faint-hearted, so that you wouldn't give up, so that you would be strengthened, so that your joint, you wouldn't be put out of joint, but you would be healed and restored. So like it says in verse 18, pray for the Lord to reign on our lives, R-A-I-N, reign from heaven on our lives, and the lives of other people. Let's remind each other of the Lord's healing and forgiveness that is given to us through Christ. James 5.18 says, Then Elijah prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Heaven gives rain. Heaven will give the rain, and the earth will bear its fruit. God will give us His Spirit, and we, His people, shall bear the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this study in James. Thank you, Father, for um, being faithful to us and for hearing our prayers and for being faithful in uh, forgiving us and uh, providing us an, an advocate in Jesus Christ and, and a, another advocate, another helper in the Holy Spirit. So thank you, God, for coming alongside us, uh, guaranteeing victory over the sin and suffering we are dealing with now. And that we can trust that this will come to an end. Um, so, God, I pray for this, for this youth group and this, and this church, Providence Road Church, that we would be people who confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. So help us be a people that care for each other so that your healing will be brought about in our lives. Not because we have like some superpower in us, um, but that these are the instruments that you use to minister to us. Namely, your people, your Holy Spirit in us. So, so God, make us, make us such a people as our high priest Jesus, who is merciful and compassionate and uh, deals with the pain and, and the sin that is prevalent and remaining in us until you return. I pray this all through Christ. Amen.